Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you to whoever you are listening to this. Before we start, just to remind you that we do this podcast two, three times a week. But we don't always know which days it's going to be on, so there's only one way to know, and that is to subscribe and get notifications. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Right, enough about that. Let's talk some rugby. I'm Ben James. I'm joined on the podcast today by a very special guest, another Ben, Ben Coles, Telegraph Rugby Royer. How are you doing, Ben? I'm very well, Ben. How are you? That's a lot of Bens, isn't it? Yeah, I'm very good. That is. That is, that is certainly a lot of Bens, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're two uh, weekends through the Six Nations now, and uh, we, we got a, a better idea of who's going to lift the trophy at the end of it. What have you made of the uh, the first two weekends? I can't lie, Ben, I've got a massive sense of relief because I, I sort of talked about France maybe winning it before the start of the tournament and and the closer it got to kick off in that first game against England, the, the more I started doubting myself and I thought this was a completely rash rash decision. There's no way this young team under a new coaching staff are going to be are going to be in the mix, but, uh, but I'm very happy to be proven, proven right, I guess, in a way, um, because they're such an exciting team. Um, and I think the fact that they're they're top of the table at the moment on points difference. They've not been perfect by by any stretch of the imagination. But the fact that they've they've picked up nine points out from those first two games is brilliant. And it's, I think we're so much better off when we've got a competitive France side. Granted, that is all going to be put to test put to the test when they go and play Wales uh, next week. But yeah, but I think that's the thing that's been the most pleasing so far is seeing France do well. Yeah, that's that's the thing with France, isn't it? They they got two tough away tests coming up now, but they finish in Paris. Uh, yeah, obviously, island it's Ireland, but you know if they're still in with a shot of winning the Six Nations on the final day, which you'd expect them to be, the way things are looking, finishing in Paris is, is massive for them, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. I, I think what's I think what's worth adding is that it, if if they'd been perfect against Italy and if they'd won by I don't know like forty points and and we'd all been sort of losing our minds about how good they were, I think that might have been the worst possible thing that could have happened to them. The, the fact that there were a few flaws in defence, the fact that Italy managed to create space out wide, get, get a few overlaps and sort of shift the ball into those wider channels and, and make good ground, it is something that will have no doubt ticked off Sean Edwards royally because France was so good in that game against England about shutting down space out wide and sort of and pressuring and forcing mistakes with their rush defence that he would have expected that on a weekly basis. I, I guess that's what happens when you when you're working with a new a new squad, isn't it? You're sort of it takes time to sort of instill that discipline in defence on a on a weekly basis. Um yeah, yeah, oh yeah, going going to Wales is, is such a big challenge. But they're a really interesting side who have got lots of young players, but lots of lots of young players with really level heads on them. Guys like Aldrich who's twenty two, DuPont who's twenty three, twenty four, fly half and, and I just I, I I'm not ready for them to sort of become terrible again, but I've got a horrible feeling that that Wales might might be able might be the team to do that really. Yeah, if that does happen, then we could be looking at another Super Saturday if England can sort of spoil Ireland's Grand Slam sort of uh, campaign at Twickenham. Then then it is set up for you're looking at maybe three teams heading into that final. Yeah, weekend, for sure. and depend, that's a- depending on what happens at Twickenham between England and Wales. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if that's the case, then that's a very long day for Wales, isn't it? Because I'm pretty sure they're the first game yep. on, on that day against Scotland. And so it will be, that's quite a lot of waiting around with the eight, last eight game kicking up at 8pm. Yeah. 
yeah, which, which would make for a fascinating day in terms of your sort of like rolling television coverage if you're sat at home because you really will be you'll be waiting for the outcome all afternoon and all evening. Yeah, I'm sure it's bad for the players, but let's be honest, it's worse for the journalists. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Won't somebody think of the journalists, Ben? I mean, we're, we're banging this drum. Won't somebody think of us, honestly? No consideration. Absolutely. Um Talking of uh, sort of predictions that you made for the Six Nations and things that have come off, as well as France, Nick Tompkins, you were banging the drum early on that one, and I remember everyone sort of turning to you in the press box where, uh, in that second half against Italy, and just you were just sat there sort of nodding. Well, I, I didn't want to be too smug. I, I just wanted to, you know, it's it's very rare to be right about anything. So so you know, just sort of. Hot, stay composed put on a, a slight smile look he, he's obviously he's a bit like France in a way and that he's obviously incredibly talented and, and there's so much promise but there are going to be a few little wobbles along the way and, and we saw that with the, with the try that Jordan Armour scored against um, against Wales in Dublin I, I know that I know that Nick copped a lot of blame for that and it was you know, and yeah he did make a mistake I, I personally thought maybe Thomas Williams could get over there a bit quicker as well the fact that Lama's getting through that many defenders in, in that closer space shows how good Lama is but it's also a sign that the defence wasn't quite clicking um, Nick's a really exciting prospect and it's such good news for Wales that there is admittedly we're, we're two tests in and, and his first test start has been defeat but he looks like he could he could slot in there in the long term, whenever Jonathan Davies does move on and does retire, because he's got the, the background of Saracens, um, he's clearly got the composure. He, he's slotted in very well to, into the squad by the sounds of things in terms of his his character and his leadership, and, and he's not afraid to to sort of be the butt of a few jokes either. Um, so yeah, he, he seems like a great addition, and, and fingers crossed that he, he he has more positive moments than negatives in this tournament. Really, what have you made of Wales so far? Because naturally. The, the Welsh reaction to, to defeat in Dublin is, you know, well, this wouldn't have happened under Gatland and Sean Edwards and, and Pivak's dreadful. That was some of the sort of stuff we saw on Twitter. But what, what have you made of them two rounds in? I mean, that's a, that's a colossal overreaction, isn't Indeed. it? I mean, Wales' record in Dublin in the Six Nations was, was poor anyway, having, having not won there on their last three trips in, in 14, 16, 18 before they, they went there. Um, this time on the pivot, I know they drew, it was in, in 2016 when they drew 16 all, but it wasn't a place where they'd had many good days apart from that slam win in 2012 when it was a late George North try to win it anyway. So I, I think it's it's quite unfair on Pivak and I saw Byron Hayden, Byron Hayden was suddenly getting loads of stick for this fence a week on after everybody was saying, oh, it hasn't done a great job kneeling Italy at home. Um, in, in terms of in terms of what they where they're at at the moment, I, I don't feel I really know how good or how bad this side is. It's obviously different to last year. The fact that they're trying to play with more width is great, and, and with that comes a few growing pains. Pivot was very clear about that from from the way back to the Six Nations launch, where he, he sort of said that it started to take a good couple of years to really get that attacking system in place and for everybody to be singing off the same hymn sheet, and it's going to be the case of Wales, and that's going to mean defeats like Saturdays in Dublin. Um, but, but at the same time, there's there's positives. I think Justin Tipperick is in great form. Um, the, the scrum is a bit of a worry and still needs to be addressed, but some of the backline players have been brilliant. Josh Adams is, is a world-class finisher. I don't think it's over the top to say that based on his recent record. So uh, there's certainly positives. I, I do think, though, that winning the championship 
it was always going to be incredibly tough to do in the first year post Scotland and and by losing in Dublin they're not they're not completely out of the mix but but at the same time it just shows how tough it is really yeah it's one of those years where you know people I'll see stories like today, you know, like Wales dealt blow in title defence and, and it takes me a while to sort of click that we are defending a title because it, it, it just doesn't feel like that because it just feels so new. Yeah, yeah, I, I entirely get that. And I think they they were so good in, in that sort of game last year, in that game, in that tournament last year, once they sorted themselves out in Paris on the opening night, they, they were such a strong side and, and were brilliant against England and Ireland at home. Uh, they were just excellent. And, and we saw that in the World Cup as well with the run to the, to the semi-finals. I, I think the impact of that World Cup and of that year and of Gatling going, there's a lot of emotion, emotional and mental toll there. Plus the fact that you've got to then adjust to a new coaching staff. Plus the fact that there's barely any fly halves left due to all the injuries. I mean, if you think about it's bigger... So is it sounding like Bigger will be okay for um, the next week? Or are we not sure? I think he's going through the protocols as we speak, and I think the early signs are positive. Um, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully he'll be okay. I, I mean, the, the, the fact that Anson's out and things like that, like they've been hit hard in, in that area too. And, and not having Bigger against France would be a real test for Jared Evans with, with Owen Williams out. So, so I guess when you, when you add all that up, it, it's a difficult set of circumstances. And I think actually to... To have nailed Italy at home and to, and to win with a bonus point, and then to to have not played terribly in Dublin. Certainly, there are things to work on. I, I don't think they're in a bad place by by any means after those first two games. One of the questions that's being asked is: Do do, do you think that the current squad of players that Pivac has got maybe has the skill set to to play the game that he wants to play? Having you know played the way they did under Gatland for so long. I mean, it's it's so early to say, but there certainly seems to be an appetite for it. I mean, someone like Josh Adams is obviously going to, as a left winger, who and, and left wings tend to get to get more of the ball than than the other side, just because the way people pass with the right hands. If Wales are putting more width on the ball, then he's someone who's going to thrive in that situation. I mean, and Dan Bigger has gone on record in in the media briefing so far that we've had with him saying that he's he's loving the, the style that Wales have because it's an extension of what he's used to at Northampton at the moment under Chris Boyd who, who the the guy who used to coach the Hurricanes and, and coach them to a Super Rugby title like he's now bigger this is he's now used to sort of playing with that sort of width and adventure and so so certainly if you've got someone like that in that role who, who's up for it then that would make sense and I feel like the scrum halves Thomas Williams and Gareth Davies can, can play that sort of style quite well as well and, and Nick Tompkins it's got the variety if he's going to be the 13. I, I think, again, it's just a betting in process. But the depth in the industry is there in the back row, certainly to win enough turnover and to create enough quick ball for Wales to, have to play that style and, and to shift it wide. I think the issue is going to be the set piece, not the line-out necessarily, because that, that's still that's still pretty strong. But, but the scrum is the issue, because without a platform, you're not going to be able to create those situations where you can sort of flash the ball wide and where you can try and take teams on. So I think that's going to be the top priority and, that, and that's the challenge for, for Jonathan Humphreys and, and the rest of the coaching staff at the moment is to, to make the scrum more competitive, not just a, a stable unit, but one that can win penalties consistently. Massively so. Um, let's move on to England then. It's been an interesting uh, start to the tournament. Defeat out in Paris. Um, some people question Eddie Jones's future, then victory in the Calcutta Cup and everything's fine. That's how it always seems yeah. to go, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, and and even then, the Calcutta game was such a weird game. 
how much do you re- read into it? I mean, it was played in just absolutely atrocious conditions. In, in fact, to be fair, the women's teams had far worse conditions to play on the Monday, <laughs> yeah, based did. on based on what we could see. I mean, that was that was extraordinary. Um, I, I I think that if they'd lost that game, it would have probably created more pressure from the public, just because it would have been another defeat. But I think actually people would have accepted that it was such a one-off game, given the weather conditions and given the way this sort of style of, style of play required to win, that that actually it wouldn't be the end of the world. Inside the camp, they would have thought that. I think outside the camp, the pressure would have grown. The problem that Eddie's got is that because his contract only runs until 2021, there's always going to be opinions that he's not really thinking long-term about the next World Cup. He's, li- he's literally just planning, how can I win another Six Nations or how can I win another Grand Slam, which obviously he's now not going to do this year. And so, therefore, I guess the attitude is if, if he's thinking short-term, then why aren't the RFU thinking short-term as well? And if results, therefore, don't work out, then then is he? why should he be kept on in the long term, I guess? Which seems crazy, because he's actually been very successful in that he's yeah. coaching them to, what, a Grand Slam, two Six Nations titles, um, to the World Cup final. I'm pretty sure he's got the best win percentage of any England head coach ever. They had that amazing unbeaten round a couple of years ago. Think of all that he's done. The good far outweighs the bad. I think it might just be that he he knows how to rile people up the wrong way, and so therefore people wouldn't be devastated to see the back of him. Although that would be a shame because he clearly clearly knows what he's doing based on his record. But if you look at the France game, I mean. France defended well, England weren't clinical, but I think if you look at like 22 entries, France would have had four and maybe took all four. It was it, it was it was almost rope-a-dope rugby from France at times, you know, and England, yeah. for, 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 you know, for their sins weren't clinical. But on another day, you know, that could easily have been an England win, you know. It, yeah. I guess it, it, it's largely overblown, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. They weren't clinical, and they were also beaten up up front, and and so therefore, they, if those two things go against you, then you've got no chance. I, I think they. It's hard to sort of overstate how much that game meant for France to have England at home, at the start of France under a new regime for the first game of the Six Nations. I was, I was chatting to Ben Benjamin Kayser uh, for a preview piece. He's, he's now just retired and is, is doing some punditry work, and is an excellent sort of sort of analyst of the French game and the French psyche. And so much there has been wrong for so long that the whole idea was that they had to get off on the on the right foot at the start of this four-year World Cup cycle, leading to the World Cup being held in France in 2023. Which is why, I mean, admittedly there have been young players at Toulouse who last season by winning the top 14 have created a bit of excitement, but that wasn't. And and even though they pushed Wales really close in all to it, and let's be honest, they should have won. But they still the French people still need something to hold on to. And so that's why the, the Stade de France was sold out for a, for a France test for the first time in forever, because there was so much excitement. And then they delivered. They more than delivered. They, I thought France were absolutely outstanding. And so England sort of coming off the back of the World Cup and coming off the back of the Saracen thing and losing Manu to Ilagi in the first 60, after 60 minutes and not having either the Polar brother. Yeah, it, it, I think it just, it really wasn't their day. And, and they, and they lost and they were well beaten and I, I guess that's just going to happen and and we won't really get a true idea of what sort of state they're in and, until Twickenham next weekend when they take on Ireland because it'll be fascinating to see them back at Twickenham going on the road the first two rounds is, is pretty tough as well they're going to be back at Twickenham hopefully with Manny Tulagi back in midfield and, and maybe we'll get a better idea of where they're at but it's it's been a tricky start and one loss one win it's not too bad it's not the end of the world 
you can always tell when things aren't going brilliantly well because you get all these little sort of like niggly headlines and stories, you know, people picking apart rugby values, booing the kicker, you know, the, the use of words like brutal, you know, brutal before games and, you know, people pulling apart Ellis Genge interviews. It, it's all these sort of things sort of come to come to the fore when things aren't going brilliantly on the pitch. Yeah, it, it feels like the, the circus is in full flow around England, don't get me wrong, but it does feel like there's more and more sort of um, sort of stories and, and sort of speculation about certain things. And, and part of me wonders whether that's just the hangover from the World Cup and whether people are still disappointed. And then part of me thinks that even if England had won the World Cup, there would still be people who were unhappy about certain things and we would still be digging into um, certain aspects of the way they're preparing for games or team selection. I, I think that's just... That's just inevitable, really. Um, they're still a very good side. They, they are still a very good side, and I know, I know people like Owen Farrell have their detractors, but he's a very good player and, and is developing as a captain. And they just sort of, I think they just seemed against France, they just seemed a little bit lost and, and a little bit sort of drained from the World Cup. And then against Scotland, you could see how pumped up the pack were when they stopped kicking it out on the field, and they actually kicked to, to sort of suit the conditions with those low like bounces that like George Ford did. In the middle of France, Genji's try, they looked really smart and really clever and, and a better team than Scotland. And so, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the Ireland game just because I, I feel like Ireland had an ideal start and, and they deservedly right out there with France. But but this is massive, this game. Huge for Andy Farrell and huge for England too to sort of keep that momentum going for America. I'm Sam Warburton, and you're listening to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. But despite all that, Ellis Genge sipped a beer, which is <laughs> yeah. cardinal sin, isn't it? Ben, ben, are you okay after you saw Ellis Genge drinking beer on I'm, national television? I mean, are you I'm, right? I'm not sure what to think these days. Um, <laughs> I, I, just okay. don't, I don't know. I don't know what rugby's become. I just want to make sure that everyone's okay. And, and I really want to make sure that someone thinks of the children as well because it was horrifying <laughs> watching him do that. I, I, Ellis is, as people are starting to learn, a, quite a fascinating character and, and a unique character and and also a hell of a player. To be honest, if, if he wants to call rubber critics and journalists sausages, that's fine. I think we've been called much worse yep. over the years. So I, I, I think sausages is actually... In a way, it's complimentary. Um, it's smart as well. It, it, it's you know the, the branding. I think Ollie Cone's probably saying it about four packets yeah, of Jolly Hog off the back. Of quite that. true. Quite true. Yeah, yeah. It probably is. It probably is. To be fair, um, Genji's fascinating in that Eddie sort of spoke about it in that interview after the Genji interview, which obviously nobody paid attention to because I was so busy reeling from shock at what Genji said and drinking a beer. Um, which was that Genge has been sort of a, a long-term project already. Uh, I remember it must have been during the the Grand Slam uh, campaign back in 2016, sort of seeing Genge wasn't in the matchday squad. I don't even know if he was like 24th or 25th man, but he was hanging around it, took him out on the training field, getting one-on-one attention from Jones, doing drills and things like that. Like, get, I mean, Eddie's obviously spotted something there from a very young age, and Genge is now, is now sort of there. Like he was selected ahead of Joe Marlin to play Scotland, came off the bench, got the try. He's obviously getting better as a scrummager with age, as, as props do. He's an awesome ball carrier as well, and 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 yeah, he had he had something a bit different, and and that and that might rile people up a bit with his attitudes. But personally, I think it's great, and, and I wish his his honesty and his sort of 
um, genuine approach that post-match interviews was was adapted by more players, as I'm sure you did as well. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It was such a sort of polar reaction, was it? A polar opposite. You know, you had people denouncing him for drinking a bit, and then you had people calling him like it was like they they, they thought it was like Billy Connolly. In, in in how hilarious it was, and the reality is, it was just quite a good post match interview. That was, you know, he, he he drank a beer. He was he was you know quite nice and honest, and there was a, a coy little laugh. I think um, I can't remember what Sonia McLaughlin asked him, but there was just a you know a coy little laugh about you know people people writing England off, and that, that's just what you want from a player. I, I thought it was yeah. brilliant. Um, what what are your views on boo- booing kickers then? Because that's also dominating Twitter at the minute. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, I, I, I'm probably a bit split in that I don't necessarily see it as this sort of sacrilegious crime against rugby and it's the, this great disrespect. I do, however, think it's completely pointless. I, yeah. I can't think of a single kicker who's been put off by lots of noise in the stadium because it's just a din. I, I think yeah. what works better is if you're completely quiet and I'm, therefore... Yeah all they've got is their own thoughts and, and their processes and when you're literally hearing the tiniest of sounds that might put them off that's, yeah. that's when it seems to work better I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's that feeling of everyone watching you isn't it yeah knowing 100%. that everyone's paying attention to you massively massively and, and I think the best example of that is Turnham Park because you can literally hear a pin drop when someone's taking a kick because it's so it's an attitude that's just instilled in everybody there and, and that's and it works great I, I, I genuinely am always and also it sounds awesome yeah. if there's honestly if there's just no sound whatsoever and all you're picking up is an almighty like thud of a rugby ball with someone trying to get it over it, it, it just sort of it creates the kind of moment that you will never get in football for example I mean try, try and get the whole of Anchor to stay quiet for a free kick for a penalty it's, it's not going to happen and you, and you don't really get it well you don't get it in cricket either the only other time you really get that sort of moment is is during golf when a player is lining up a key putt to, to win something well well any part but especially when they're trying to when they sink a putt from miles out to win the Ryder Cup or the Masters or whatever and it's definitely quiet before they take it like, that's that's great are you, are and, you advocating full on American chance of get through the posts no hey, <laughs> goal kicking hey <laughs> If it's after the kick, then great. Yeah, sure. Say whatever you want. I, then I'm I'm all for it. But I just I just always think of those moments in, in golf is so great because yeah I know it just elevates it. And rugby has an opportunity with the penalty kick to sort of self police and to do that. I'm, I'm not saying that like fans should be like fine or bad. No, I'm not going that far. But I mean, it, it just creates such a cool atmosphere. That why would you not want to have that every week? I just why find, would you not want to sort of enjoy it? I find there's always something comical about the people who shush. Yeah, you, you get I, that, you I, get that, like, like a, a delayed shush. After maybe that's me. Maybe maybe it's me. Maybe I'm maybe I'm the person who's trying to get people to be quiet because I want to preserve this this <laughs> this special moment at a game. I don't know. I don't know. I, I I get why I get why fans can be annoyed with a referee's decision to give a penalty against their team. I totally get that. But just you know, just get it out. Just like. Say whatever you want to say to the ref or about the ref before and after, like the last thirty seconds of when the kick's been taken, and and then just be quiet for a bit. I think it's great. And then obviously we talked about Ellis Genge drinking beer. Let's talk about Scotland. Yes, um, which also includes drinking beer. Um, nice, good link. Oh, yeah. Great, great segue. Um, like it, like actually, it. Actually, actually saw Finn Russell liked a tweet. I think it was. Um, 
someone tweeted something like, oh, Ellis Genge is allowed to drink beer, and I think Finn Russell liked it, which, I mean, <laughs> given the interview he did on Sunday, he, he's sort of doubling down on that. What, what have you made of that? Because um, it's a sensational interview on Sunday, and then Gregor Townsend came out with a statement, which, you know, it, it really is, um, the bridge is burnt, it feels like, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and what's weird is that before the, the interview in the Sunday Times that Tim Russell did, it sort of seemed as though there was a good chance that he was going to come back into the fold and be available for um, for the game next weekend against Italy. And then all of a sudden that interview comes out and, and Townsend hits back in the press and it's all dead in the water. Um, I feel I feel like it's a massive shame because because obviously there's a rift there between Preston and Townsend. They've obviously fallen out to the point where it's just not going to work. But what that takes away from Scotland is, is probably their, their best player. I, I know Stuart Hogg is, is a phenomenal fullback and is now captain and, and can have these moments of magic on his day. But I think on form, the, the stuff that Russell is doing Racing is unbelievable in, in the top 14 in the Champions Cup. Admittedly, he gets a bit of an armchair ride from an incredible pack of forwards who, who are big and can dominate the game. Like, but even so, like, it's not just the highlight reel stuff, like the little flicks and, and kicks, although those are awesome. But just generally, he's he's playing brilliantly. And Scotland need brilliant talents, as many as they can get on that side. And so if you take him away, it's just... It's just a real waste. And I, I was excited before the start of the tournament because I thought Adam Hastings is, was playing really well for Glasgow and that therefore if Russell was going to be, be away for one game or maybe two, then that wouldn't be such a bad thing for Hastings' development to get a couple of tests under his belt and start to turn and to try and carry that form over. But but now it seems like Russell's never coming back. Yeah, it's it's just a massive shame, isn't it? And, and, and I guess the other teams who... Uh, still to play Scotland, including Wales on the last day, will we'll probably be a bit happier, won't they? Knowing that they're not going to be taking on one of the one of the form tens in Europe, really. Obviously, you mentioned Stuart Hogg there, and, and that's a big thing, isn't it? Because I think it's he's he's a bit like Sergio Parise for me, in that if you know there isn't another sort of like star in the team like a Finn Russell, then he he, he feels that burden to take too much responsibility on, and sort of he try he some you know it feels like he's trying to take on the opposition on on his own, which is. You know, when you get Sergio Parise yeah. trying to try and last-minute drop goals to win games. Yeah, massively, and and you pro- and you can't you can't directly pin it on the couple of killer mistakes that Hogs had. In the no, it's not games. even that, but, is it? It's just. But, but obviously, he, he he has got a lot going on through his head, like when a like when an informed batsman becomes Test cricket captain, and then yeah. suddenly they have, they've got more duties, and then the runs sort of dry up a little bit, or the, or the magic isn't quite there. Like Hogs, you know, he's got a lot to juggle and. And therefore, you're right. He needs as many good players around him as possible. And and Scotland do have that in the backs. But the fact that Finn Russell is now not coming back in the Six Nations and Johnny Gray's without out for the rest of the Six Nations, that that's enormous. I mean, that that really is taking away two of Scotland's best players, if not their best players, along alongside Hogg. And so, therefore, it's hard to it's hard to feel a ton of optimism for what they're going to do going forward. And and having having sort of heard bits out of the Italian camp and uh, spoke to Jake Pelleggi this week ahead of next week's game. The Italians are circling that game in Rome as the absolute must-win game to finally end this whole run of results in the Six Nations, partly because they feel like they, they did some good bits against France and can take them into next week, which which is true. But also because you know Scotland, Scotland are coming off two losses and even though they played well against Ireland and against England in patches, Italy just feel that they've got a real chance there. It'd be fascinating to see if that's the case, to be fair. 
what, what have you made of Italy? Because I thought, even against Wales, they at least under Franco Smith, they had a, some form of attacking structure, which they maybe didn't have under Conor O'Shea. I always think Conor O'Shea, you know, he, he was really good at, you know, sort of the backroom stuff and at coming up with sort of things like the old, the, you know, the England offside thing. But there wasn't a real sort of attacking, a modern attacking structure in place. And I think what we've seen in the first two games is they have an attacking structure that can break defences down. I mean, they did that a bit against Wales. It's just there was a lot of knock-ons. and But, they, you know, they, yeah. they got a few line breaks against Wales and they stretched the defence and then they carried it on against France and looked good there. So what, what have you made of them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, talking about new coaches sort of bedding in their players like Pivak and, and Farrell, Franco Smith sort of come, has been parachuted in really at, at, at quite late in the day and is only on an interim deal. I, I think the sooner that's sorted out, the better. Um, his his teams in the past, especially his cheetah sides in in um in all the cheetahs in Super Rugby, which he was involved with, were, were renowned for scoring tries from everywhere and being an incredibly entertaining outfit who would rack up loads of points, but also being really flimsy defensively. And and so therefore his attacking game can be brilliant, but there is going to need to be some structure in the defence. Um, Forty-two nil is just the score against Wales. It's just an absolutely horrible scoreline to shake off because it just lingers. It's such a just like looms over everything you do. But against France, when that game looked as though France were going to run away with it after going up ten nil and getting a couple of early tries, fair play to Italy. They they came back and played some brilliant rugby. They have got backs in Manozzi and Bellini who can threaten out wide. Um, Jaden Hayward is so crucial at fullback. Yeah, I, I appreciate he's getting on a bit now at 32, but he's he's class. And he's, he was their best player last year by mile and they need him so much in that attack to, to link things together. And Smith is trying something new in that he's he's got Carlo, Carlo Cano playing at 12. I mean, I, I can't remember Carlo Cano ever playing yeah. at 12. And yet you had him on Sunday in Paris against France sort of running up <laughs> Doing like crash ball lines off lineouts and things like that, and but he's also there as a, a second distributor to sort of give us more width, which again I can't remember them ever doing. So um, a lot of that's to take the pressure off nine, isn't it? Because I think under O'Shea, they yeah, play, they played too much off nine. Yeah, yeah, so they did. They, they've sort of they've always uh, sort of fallen into this hole of just one out runners off off the scrum half, and then they, that's why they've been left susceptible to turnovers. All the attack is stalled, and they and they've had to kick it away. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like there's talent there and, and, and there's promise there in the backs. And then guys like Sebastian Negri and Jake Pelleggi just have phenomenal engines in the back row. And there's a couple of young props who look good. I think it's a lot cheap, tight head. There's just sort of little shoots of, of promise there that, that suggest that something could be done. But they, they need to they need to work out what they're doing with their coach. Is Frank Smith going to be coaching this team for, until the next World Cup? In which case... So it's contract out. Yeah. Set everything in stone so the players know what's going on and they don't feel that this Six Nations is just a write-off. Um and, and while I like I like the fact that Parise is going to get one final game, um, and it sounds like that's that's going to be against England on the last day, it shouldn't really be against Scotland because that Scotland game feels like a game they can win. Yep. Um even him coming back is a little bit it has a bit of an exhibition y sort of vibe, doesn't it? That that's a little bit strange. Um, especially when you're trying to rebuild a team and, and to give a clear purpose going forward. They're, they're just in a funny place. And the sooner they can get a win and end this run of 23 losses or 24 losses in Six Nations, whatever it is, the better, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, when South Africa joins the Six Nations, it could be more losses, couldn't it? 
I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I feel like we've I feel like we've had that story sort of on an annual basis for and the last six five years. Goes um, that way, doesn't it? It does. It, it makes I I'm not against it because it makes sense with the time zones and and the travel. Um, I, I used to live in Cape Town and doing that sort of journey back and forth is quite easy to do because it's just overnight an overnight flight and you don't get any jet lag. It is feasible for for that to happen. And I think the South African teams in the Pro 14, I mean, you'll know this better than me, but, but the Cheetahs sort of, certainly not this season, but in the past have been competitive. And I yeah. think I think that sort of works, which is probably why we're still having this conversation about the box in the, in the Six Nations. But I mean, until it's the first game of the tournament and you've got Arnold playing the box at Ellis Park, then I'm not going to sort of buy, buy into it until we see it really, just because I, I feel like there's a lot of paperwork and loopholes to sort out first. Oh, indeed. Um, so yeah, then let's, uh, let's finish with um, some predictions then. So who, after two, two weekends of the Six Nations, uh, who, who are you predicting to come out on top? Uh, good question. Um, I don't know how much I trust myself. I said Virumi Vakatara was going to be the player of the tournament and he was okay against England and then didn't play against Italy. Um, so I don't know how much I trust my track record. I I would love France to do it, but I could see them... I think they could still win the title even if they lose to Wales next week. I still think that's a possibility just with Ireland at home and I think they'll be okay against Scotland even though it's away I think they've got enough there even though they haven't won I think they've lost their last three at Murrayfield and the Six Nations I still think they've got enough um, so I'm going to stick with France I, I, I don't know how it's going to happen but I just, I think if they can if they could get a losing bonus point in Cardiff that would be unbelievable and that, and that would give them enough sort of ammunition to take forward and don't sleep on England because no. again if England knock off Wales and Ireland at home maybe with a try bonus point or or deny the other two getting bonus points then, then they'll be in the mix but I'm sticking with France what about you? Um, I'm thinking France as well just because of how, yeah. how, how it comes out with you know Ireland in Dublin sort of um, last weekend I'm currently doing a permutations piece on how Wales can still win the Six Nations so my head is okay. spinning um, your head is scrambled yeah. I, I would I would just say one one thing is that we've probably been a little bit guilty of, of sleeping on Ireland a little oh I yeah think massively because, I think just because Farrell came in and, and we sort of thought, oh, well, need, even though he was part of Schmidt's bag himself, I think we, we sort of gave them, a bit like Wales, we sort of just gave them the year off just to see what they could do. But actually, the, the pillars of that, that team are, are still there from when they were successful two years ago. Yeah, and Sexton and Murray look back to the best form. Stander has been unreal, winning Man of the Match twice. I, I know, they're, they're in the mix and, and they could win it to a and in which case... They get the triple crown and they'll be on for the title as well. So yeah, it, it still feels wide open. Indeed, it does. Um, what's the next Twitter scandal going to be after Genge and <laughs> booing kickers? Oh god, I don't know. I don't want to know. I'd, I'd like it to be something positive. I'd like it to be. Sorry, Scottish listeners. I'd like it to be like Italian people dancing in the streets of Rome after not finally winning a Six Nations game for the first time in what feels like forever. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd a nice, be- a nice positive story. Exactly, a nice, a nice positive way to finish the podcast as well. Uh, ben, it's been a pleasure having you on. Ben, always a pleasure. Thank you, mate.